Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Those who are going to Little Worship uh, can be dismissed at this time. You can carry your palm branches with you as well. And uh, if you're staying in here with us, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, or it's, it's also there in your, uh, in your bulletins. So the, the, the history of uh, church building architecture uh, is, uh, is way more interesting than it sounds, way more interesting than you think. Uh, of course, if you go back and study history, you know that for the first three to four hundred years of the, the church, early church, uh, most congregations met in, in homes, right? They, they met in little house churches. But as the gospel spread and the, co- the gospel congregations grew and grew and grew, uh, at some point they, they outgrew their small little meeting houses, and so they decided to build bigger gathering places, gathering houses oftentimes on the same site as the original house church. And and though we we know this in the New Covenant, um, there are no sacred spaces now, right? Because of the New Covenant, there are no sacred spaces where God is now more present than He is anywhere else. Because when Jesus died and and rose, I mean, the the curtain was torn, right? The curtain that that kept us away from the, the sacred place. And so now in Jesus... God is, is present with His people, in His people, uh, wherever we are, mountain high, valley low. Jesus is, is present. God is present with His people. And so I know some of this uh, was, was controversial, and much of the Reformed and, and Puritanical views of church architecture stem from, or from trying to address different abuses in this, in which the church once again jumped the shark and tried to bring back the concept of sacred spaces through with the use of icons or altars. Um, so I, I, we're going to skim over a lot of that. But with that said, as the church grew, especially in a, a mostly illiterate world, the church sought to start literally designing their worship spaces, their, their quote, gathering houses, uh, in a way that was a gospel lesson in itself. And so the, the, the main meeting areas had typically had a high vaulted ceiling. Y'all seen those churches with the big vaulted ceilings, right? High vaulted ceilings supported by ribs. And it was designed that way so that if you kind of used your imagination and you looked at it upside down, it was almost as if you were in a boat. That, that, was, that the, the vaulted ceiling was the kill of the boat and you were riding in the boat as, as a congregation. And... Um, it was designed that way, and then it got to the point to where they called that vaulted room the big gathering place, the nave of the church, from the Latin word navis, which means boat or, or ship. And so this point, of course, you come in, of mostly illiterate people, you come in and you, and you get a visual of Noah's Ark. Um, you, you got this visual where all who were inside were safe, uh, but also it, it was a picture of the fishing boat from where Jesus calmed the storm. And so it's a beautiful reminder that though we live in a fallen, stormy world, in Jesus, uh, we are in the boat. 
and he will save us, and he will lead us to safe harbor. And so this led Charles Spurgeon to say, I scarcely know of an apter picture of a church than a ship upon the treacherous Galilean sea with Jesus and his disciples sailing in it. So with that, uh, in this stormy life, welcome to the boat, Westminster. Um, granted, we have a flat-bottom boat, if you, if you know. But flat-bottom boats are good, right? They're durable. You can catch a lot of fish out of flat-bottom boats, right? Um, but welcome, really, welcome to the boat. And so that we do not fear, let's hear some more about the one who is in the boat with us. Uh, this is God's Word, Luke chapter 8. 22 through, 40, or 22 through 25. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, the, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And the disciples went and woke Jesus saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Jesus said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? This is God's inspired, holy word. Two points this morning as we, we look through Luke chapter 8. <clears throat> Storms, storms, and then the Lord of the storm. Just two, two takeaways. Uh, first, storms. You know, as Christians, we need, a, we need a good theology, a healthy theology of storms, uh, don't we? <clears throat> Some of us may be experiencing a storm right now. Um, and in the storm, it's, it's easy to think, if I had just done more, right? If, if I had just tried harder, if I was maybe a little more discerning, maybe then I could just avoid all storms. I could just storm-proof my, my entire life. You know, the American version of the gospel tells us that following Jesus will make us happy and healthy, and everything's going to be rainbows and unicorns. The worst is behind us, right? But that is a lie. Uh, that is not the gospel. That is a false gospel. Uh, rather, really, ask any, ask any older Christian that you respect. I, I ask almost any other, other Christian... Um, and they will tell you that every spiritual truth, or really everything that has grown them, has come through affliction, through the storm. I don't know why humans are like we are, but like we just don't learn through good times, uh, but, but we learn through the storm. And so that's the first thing, is, is simply to expect storms. Expect storms. Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So don't be surprised. You know, when you, when you feel like you were just going, like you feel like you may be going through literal hell in your life, or you're peeling, uh, don't be surprised. In fact, in this fallen world, following Jesus will likely put you right in the path of the storm, uh, which brings us to the second brief reality we see here. Not only should we expect storms, but God divinely places his people in them. And that doesn't mean that God causes every storm, right? Uh, sometimes storms come, I mean, they're self-imposed, right? They're just natural consequences of our sin, our foolishness. But in our passage, we've got to see that it was Jesus' idea 
for them to get in that boat and to cross that lake, right? And this was Jesus' idea, and he did so knowing that, that he would put his disciples smack dab in the middle of a storm. So I know that there are times when storms come in your life, and you're like, where are you, God? I don't even know if you exist. We've got to see that, no, oftentimes God is there. Like, God is putting you uh, in the storm. So when the storms come, storms of family issues, you know, relational strife, health concerns, uh, storms of doubt, storms of conviction, uh, financial storms, there will be times when the winds are howling and, and water is coming into our little boat, your little boat. And you're going to feel like joining the psalmist and say, Lord, the, the waters are coming up to my neck. And when that happens, it is tempting to ask God, where are you? But here in God's, by the way, inspired word to us, we see that not only is God with us in the boat, but it's, it's his idea. <laughs> because riding with him through the storms are necessary for faith to grow. Storms grow, our faith grows in through storms. Which then brings us to the third reality of storms. Uh, storms reveal our heart like nothing else. So, so far, Jesus, you know, we've, we've been in the loop for a while. Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been doing all these wonderful, wonderful things. He's been teaching gospel wonderful realities. And, and so far, all of his disciples, they've just kind of been along for the ride, right? They haven't really, really contributed too much to it. But finally, Jesus wanted to sail across the lake and here was their time to shine, right? Uh, because, you know, for the disciples who were fishermen, being on a boat on the lake was, was their happy place. <laughs> I mean, this is their comfort zone. This is like a pig in mud. They are just happy as can be. I mean, so it wouldn't have been a stretch. I know this isn't in the Bible, but it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine. Or, or maybe it was Peter who said, Jesus, you just lay down. You, you just relax. You've been working hard. You just relax and lead the sailing to us, we got this. This is our, our domain. Well, as many scholars note, uh, the topography of the Sea of Galilee, or really it's just a lake, um, a freshwater lake, which, which they call the sea, um, is, uh, the, the lake is itself 700 feet below sea level, and then it's surrounded by mountains and gorges all around it. And so because of this unique uh, topography of the region, um, though the Sea of Galilee is often calm, when it does have a storm, they're usually pretty intense. And apparently, this storm was such that the disciples had never seen because it caused these salty old sailors to say, I don't know if we're going to make it. Like, like Peter and John, to give themselves up as lost. And so verse 23, And a windstorm came down, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and they woke Jesus saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And Jesus asked this really sobering question to them. He said, he said where, where is your faith? Where, where is your faith? Okay. You know, we can come to church and, and we can talk about trusting Jesus and we can sing about trusting Jesus and yet storms rip away, right? And storms reveal what we're really trusting in. It's like it, it cuts through all of it. You know, storms reveal our heart. Eric Reed said, in all my years of pastoring, I have learned this lesson. A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible 
until they don't get their way. He said, when things are not in their control, then you see the real person. That's pretty piercing, isn't it? It's pretty easy to be holy and, and, you know, and seeking God when everything is going perfect in your life, right? And so Jesus took his disciples to the very place some of them considered their comfort zone. You know, the, the very place where, where they thought they were, in, were most in control. And he showed them that even there, like, like not at their worst, but even at their best, they still needed help. They still needed Jesus. And so their fear here showed that their faith or, or their trust was, was in themselves and their ability to get that boat across that lake. And in a split second, they saw reality that they don't got it. And so Westminster, the question for us is, where is your faith? You know, what are you, what are you truly trusting in? Um, you know, God is the most trustworthy being in the entire universe, which means to, to trust in anything more than him is insanity. So what are you trusting in? Another way to ask this in, is, in what areas of your life do you say, Jesus, I, I got this, this is my area, now I, I need you over here, but I, I can handle this area. Well, God knows what storms we need to strip away all of that and to show us who we really are and you know, to see that, no, no, we, we don't got this. And so sometimes when you're in the middle of the storms of life, it's probably good to pause and just ask that question, like how is Jesus teaching me or, or how is he showing me what I'm really trusting in and how is this is an, ability to, uh, an opportunity to repent and to return to him? One author said, to take life seriously is to see that you are in over your head. And you are in a sea, and by yourself you can't make it. So storms bring out areas of life where we're trying to white-knuckle it on our own. Uh, it, and it lays us bare and shows us that we cannot trust in our own strength. That not only can we not do that, we can't even row our figurative boats across the lake. Who are we to stand before God? I mean, like, like, who are we to provide safety and rest for our souls? So storms exhaust our options like nothing else. And they wash away all our false hopes, revealing that there is only one strong enough to see us through this life. That there is only one who is completely trustworthy and thus worthy of our complete trust. It's, it's Jesus, the Lord of the storm. Which brings us to our second point. The middle of verse 24, uh, Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind and the waves and they ceased. There was this, this calm, calm on the water. And it's, it's really fascinating that as you read this, you see that it wasn't the storm that woke Jesus. But it was the lack of the faith of his disciples that woke Jesus. Which tells us a few things. One, it tells us that Jesus does hear the cries of his people from the storm, Jesus hears the cries of his people. And then two, it shows us this picture well, of Jesus sleeping in the middle of this, what Luke calls a, a, essentially a hurricane, a windstorm. Jesus sleeping in the middle of a hurricane also shows the deep peace that comes from trusting. I'm talking like leaning all of our weight on our good, good Father. It's, it's rest in the whirlwind of, 
of life. But we don't merely see peace, nor someone who hears the cries of his people. But what we see in Jesus, we see he is actually powerful enough to do something about it. He's actually powerful enough to give us peace and to do something about our cries. He is powerful to save. And so to the Hebrews, the sea was the most chaotic thing imaginable. They, they hated it. They avoided it. And yet here Jesus, notice like he didn't have to grab a magic wand, right? He didn't have to hold up a staff, right? He didn't have to like channel the force. Is that how they do it? No, like he just woke up from a nap. Possibly if he's like me, um, maybe a little groggy from his nap. And he just woke up from a nap, spoke, the winds and waves obeyed. And the disciples, they had seen Jesus do some serious miracles, right? But, but, but this, uh, this was next level power. And at, at the end, in amazement, they asked the only logical question they could. They're like, who the heck is this? Like, who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. All right, well, in what time we have left, yeah, um, I want to pry into what the Bible says, and, and Lee read some of it this morning, of what the Bible says about Jesus being the sustainer and Lord of all, so that we can hopefully see that even as awesome as this is, even this is child's play for Jesus. There's more. And I'll admit that most of this is over my head. Some of, some of you who are more scientifically minded can probably like come preach this better than me. I, I'm, I'm relying on a lot of really smart people and scientists and some, infra, uh, some data from Eric Metaxas and others. But modern science has shown us just how much, I, know, I don't know about you, but I know me, I, how, how much I can take Jesus' creating and sustaining power for granted. And, and this is a, a little bit on the apologetic side. But, but, and these are things that most churches aren't even talking about. Probably most Christians aren't even aware about, uh, but, or aware of. But let's, let's let this cause us to worship and, and trust Jesus even more. So here's what I mean. So 50 years ago, um, strict naturalists, like, you know, atheistic uh, scientists, uh, led by Carl Sagan, declared that there are only two conditions necessary for life to exist. Just, just two. They, they said that you needed a certain type of a star, kind of like the sun, and then you needed a certain planet, a, a certain distance away from that sun. And that's it. With those two parameters, scientists estimated that about one one-thousandth of the stars in the universe would have a planet that could sustain life. And so these pure naturalists said, of course, given the sheer size of the universe, that would surely mean that there's a planet out there that meets the qualifications for life. And so the scientific community was, was all optimistic about 50, 60 years ago about finding life out in the universe, and they launched all these government programs about trying to find extraterrestrial life out there. I'm thinking, look, it just happens naturally, given the right scenarios, it's out there. Okay, well, that was 50 years ago. And since then, as scientists have studied creation more, they have found that there are actually way more than two conditions needed to sustain life. And as they've studied, that, num that number has risen to over 150 and counting, which means the number of potential planets that meet the criteria have also shrank drastically uh, to the point 
that a few years ago, that number went down to below zero. Like, I don't know how that works, like below zero percent for life to be, okay? So, according to the biggest and brightest scientists, statistically speaking, <laughs> life of any kind should not exist, like any kind. Metaxas wrote, our existence on earth is a statistical and scientific impossibility. It is an anomaly of an impossibly high order. All right, now, as believers, we know the variable that the naturalistic scientists are, are missing. Now, we know of one who is in the impossible business, right? Um, all of this screams to a creator God doing the impossible by the power of his word. And, and so here are, are just, a, just a few of, of those parameters that scientists have found that is necessary um, and that we now know that Jesus is powerfully sustaining perfectly. So first, um, they talk about just the size of our planet, the size of Earth. I know this is, this is a little weird, but we're going somewhere with this, okay? Um, the size of a planet determines, uh, allegedly, I don't know this, but scientists say this, the size of a planet determines the gravity of a planet, um, which means if Earth were just a little bit bigger, then the gravity would be also be larger and um, that, that doesn't mean that we would all weigh more, um, though we would. Um, no, we're like, we're talking about like down to the minute, like I'm talking fractional level. If it was just slightly larger, meaning gravity would be more, that means that toxic gases like methane or ammonia with their molecular weights of 16 and 17 would be heavier as well. And that would cause them, instead of being up in the atmosphere where they can dissipate, they're actually would be down on the surface of the earth, and of course we would all die. Uh, we wouldn't make it. On the other hand, if earth was a bit small, like only slightly smaller, then gravity would be lighter. And that means that water vapor, with this molecular weight of 18, we're talking like the difference between 17 molecular weight and 18 molecular weight, it's like the next one, you know what I'm saying? Like, that is how finely tuned this thing is. Um, then water vapor would not stay down on the planet's surface, but it too would dissipate up into the atmosphere. And so the size of Earth has to be exactly the size that it is, um, or life would not be. So a, a planet small enough to allow poisonous gases with molecular weights of 16 and 17 to be light enough to go up, and large enough... Uh, so that water, with its number at 18, to stay down near the surface. And so Jesus is like, look, you think a storm is impressive? Like, my sustaining power goes down to the molecular weight level, okay? Like, this is way, way, way down every day. Um, second, speaking of water, most of y'all, some of you know this, I didn't know this, but typically, well, I know this part, typically when things move from gas to liquid to solid, um, their molecules become more dense, right? Like solid things typically weigh more than the liquid version of them, right? Well, except for water. When it comes to the very thing we need to live, scientists have discovered that water has this really quirky molecular structure that it's just weird. Um, that as it gets colder and, and moves towards a solid, it does become more dense until about 39 degrees, at which point it actually starts becoming less dense um, by, that by the time water turns into a solid called ice, it's actually less dense than its liquid form. And so if God had not created this really strange quirk 
in water's molecular structure, then obviously lakes would freeze from the bottom up. You know, it would just, and everything would die in all, all of the water. Um, and, of course, it would kill all life. Uh, but the Lord of creation does all things well. Isn't that great? Like, go, go, go see some water. It's like it's an opportunity to worship. You know? um, well, he knows what we need to live. Uh, third, or, or what about just the speed in which the earth rotates? I know we take for granted that we have 24-hour days, and some of us wish that we had a few more hours in the day sometimes, or maybe we wish we had less. Um, but if earth rotated just, I mean, just a fraction of a bit slower, I mean, it's so fine-tuned that the dark of night would get colder and then the heat of the day would get hotter to the point that life could not be sustained. It's this 24-hour rotation that creates this, like, livable, temperate temperature. Um, but on the other hand, if Earth rotated just slightly faster and the days were shorter, uh, that, that would produce really high winds. And how high, scientists don't really know, but they do know that winds on Jupiter are routinely 1,000 miles per hour. So... Um, and I guess you could live with that, but life as we know it would not exist, right? Um, Jesus sustains the exact rotation of the earth <laughs> so his creation can flourish. And, and look, there, there's so, I mean, there are like so, and there are hundreds of more of these little things that, that the only logical explanation is that, that God uh, has finely tuned and Jesus is sustaining it. And, you know, scientists have tried to put a number on all the odds of not, not life, that would be astronomically more, but all, has tried to put a number on the odds of hitting all the precise variables just as it has been hit, um, for, just for the universe to be here. Not life, but just for there to be like a universe. And they said the odds were 1 in 10 to the 40th power. Okay, now, I, I don't know what that means. Um, but Christian uh, astrophysicist Hugh Ross said, he explained it this way. He said, imagine covering every square inch of the surface of North America in, in dimes. Okay, that'll take a long time. Right? Um, and he said, once you're done with that one layer of dimes over North America, he said, then put down another layer of dimes. And then another, and then another. And he says, continue doing this until your pile of dimes has reached the height of the moon. So 238,000 miles high. And then once you've covered all of North America, he says, do the exact same thing to another billion continents, the same size as North America. And then randomly choose one dime in those billion, 238,000 mile high stacks of dimes. He said, paint it red and then put it back in the pile. Then blindfold a friend and ask your friend to go pick uh, one coin from all of those you know, billion, 238,000 mile high piles of dimes. He said the odds of your friend picking out the red dime are 1 in 10 to the 40th power. In words, I mean, it's, it's impossible. It, it, it's impossible, and yet what is impossible with man and even with science, God did. He spoke and an extremely, extremely fine-tuned creation happened. And if we believe what the Bible teaches, that, that Jesus was present at creation, Jesus was involved in all of this creative power, then it shouldn't surprise us that he can tell a storm to hush, right? It shouldn't surprise us. Of course he can. If Jesus is sustaining the molecular structure of, of every inch or less 
of our universe. If God is aware of every bird that falls, if God is aware of every hair on our head, then how much more can we trust Him, like really trust Him to sustain us and to keep His children through the storm? And this is small potatoes compared to His power. I tell you, like, you don't need a PhD to understand that. You don't need a PhD to trust Jesus. Uh, we just need the Holy Spirit to show our hearts the historic gospel. Because the wonder of it all isn't how Jesus like, controls the rotation of the earth. Um, no, the wonder is 2,000 years ago, Jesus not only spoke to a storm, but Jesus took on himself on the cross the biggest storm of all, the, the storm of God's wrath towards sin. And y'all, he weathered it alone. Like, Jesus didn't even ask us to get in that boat. Jesus didn't ask us to, to weather that storm. He weathered it alone so that if we are in him, we never have to go through the, the most difficult storm by ourselves. He did it for us. Which means in Jesus, I know we say this all the time, but you have the love of your heavenly Father. You have the embrace of God, the favor of God, the smile of God. And then Jesus promised that if we are in him, he would be with us always, come what may. Which means if you are in Jesus, the one who holds the universe together, literally, also holds you. So fear not, little flock. And this passage begs the question there at the end, that if the wind and the waves hear Jesus and obey him, then how much more of a reason do we I, who are saved by him, have to trust him and obey him. Well, it's, uh, kids, what does Buzz Lightyear say? Are there any kids in here? Okay, what's Buzz Lightyear say? What's his thing? To, yeah, we have to infinity and beyond reasons to trust Jesus and to obey our Savior Jesus, the Lord of the storm, Right? Westminster and friends, this morning is just an invitation to do that. It's to come. And, and then as we leave here and we like look out at creation, we see all the beautiful things to see that Jesus, as he sustains that, how much more so is he sustaining you? He's good. He's powerful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the realities that we see, even, even that we see through science of just how, just the minutia that you're involved in sustaining, uh, the power that you have over all of your creation. And Lord, that means you also have power over us. Uh, Lord, that you can, you can speak to hard hearts, to prideful hearts. Uh, you can speak to people who feel like they, they are so lost, they have no hope. And yet you can breathe your gospel in through your spirit and say, no, there's hope. No, there's hope. Lord, may we find the hope of Jesus through your Spirit. Lord, teach us the love, the joy, the peace that is in him. And may, may we even, like Jesus, may it cause us to, to rest, even in the heart of life, knowing that Jesus is with us. Whom shall we fear? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. 
Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.